heaven, but um, it, it's, it's good to understand that. Uh, most denominations, tragically in America today, fail here. Um, so, um, you know, we'll just, we'll just look at, begin to look at it next time. And then, then uh, uh, we begin Roman numeral 4, uh, which is, um, uh, we will go through John Murray's book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. Uh, I, I, I get a lot of moans here. Oh, Phil, I can't understand this. It's so hard. It is kind of hard because, because of an essential factor that um, we, we don't study things systematically, if that makes sense. Um, I mean, the church has gotten so far away from that uh, that it's kind of a struggle for people to begin to you know, get into it. And this is, this is kind of a difficult subject. Uh, redemption accomplished and applied. So it's uh, majesty of what Christ has done. Uh, but we'll, we'll begin to read that. Um, but um, because of the, um, uh, you know, moaning doesn't sound like a very good pastoral term. Uh, you know, let's just say complaining. <laughs> Maybe that's not any better. I, uh, I went through and outlined the book. It's kind of a cheat sheet, you know. Um, you know, for those of you who've, Taking collegiate classes, you're all familiar with cliff notes. Everybody goes and buys the cliff notes. <laughs> so this is kind of the cliff notes to redemption accomplished and applied. So, so um, this morning uh, we're going to look at um, really, a, to me, is a challenging subject, but one that's important nonetheless. Um, and, and we'll finish, Lord willing, attributes of God uh, this time. Uh, but let's start with a word of prayer. Uh, Heavenly Father, bless us in our study. Help us to wrestle and struggle with difficult issues, um, the scriptures. Um, help us to be good students and to study to show ourselves approved unto God, uh, workmen that do not need to be ashamed, uh, rightly applying the word of truth. Um, give us uh, uh, understanding by the illuminating power of the Spirit and uh, help us to be thoughtful about deep and penetrating issues, uh, certainly of which uh, the love of God is uh, so numbered. And we pray for the glory of Christ and in His name, Amen. Um, I, I spend a little bit of time talking about uh, particularism, uh, which is really the essence of the Reformed faith. And of course, uh, if you remember my introduction, we talked about the spectrum of theology beginning with atheism to theism. And I gave you the proposition that Calvinism or the doctrines of the sovereign grace of God is consistent theism. And that really becomes an essential consistency because the truth is consistent, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, uh, I mean, think in terms of our politicians. Uh, they wouldn't have to take notes about what they said if they just told the truth all the time. You know? but, but they're always changing. Uh, I get tickled at those sites that say, well, uh, uh, three years ago he said this. You know, How'd you like to be judged by that standard? But if you always tell the truth, you don't have to worry about that standard. 
but yeah, politicians, politicians. Uh, and, and we need to do the same. But, but the issue is consistency uh, applies to all of these attributes, and particularism drives us to that end because uh, uh, particularism is not just an essence of Reformed theology. It's really the essence of the Scriptures. So, uh, so let's look at some verses and kind of struggle with this. Um, Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, uh, verses 7 and 8. The Lord did not set His love on you or choose you because you were more in number than any of the other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord God loved you, and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of uh, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Uh, Jeremiah chapter uh, 31, 3. Um, never get there. The Lord appeared to him from afar saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. Okay. Um, it, it's a reminder if you want to ponder the challenging word particularism. And again, I'm not saying it's an easy word, um, but Jeremiah chapter 1.5. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Okay. Um, um, the concept of knowledge here is, is, a, is very intense. It's more than cognition. Uh, because since God knows everything, we, you know, He knew when Jeremiah was going to be born from eternity past. What does it mean here? Well, He has a special affection. Uh, for for the prophet, okay. Um, and before you were born, I consecrated you and appointed you a prophet to a nation. So, kind of a special uh, idea there. Um, Pink, I think, defines uh, love as that aspect of divine nature in which he sets his affections and designs to redeem us. Okay. Everybody see the particularism there? Does it redeem everybody? Well, obviously not. So does he set his love and affections upon everybody? That's really the question. Okay. So it's a... Um, uh, the nature of the love, the love of God is uninfluenced, it's eternal, it's sovereign. God is under no obligation. Uh, and he, he loves those whom he pleases. The love of God is infinite, immutable, holy, and love of God is gracious. So, um, so there's some problems with this uh, concept that I'm presenting to you, aren't there? Uh, there are always problems in theology. That's the importance of studying theology. It flushes out inconsistency. And it forces us to deal with difficult issues. So let's think of the well-known verse, John 3.16. By the way, did that verse flash across any of your minds while I was speaking? Well, I hope so. I mean, you know. So, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him 
did not perish but have eternal life. Okay. Um, so, so the purpose of God giving His Son uh, in order that um, whoever believes in Him uh, has eternal life. Okay. God so loved the world. So we have to look first, I think, at the direct object, uh, the, word, the word world. What does the world mean? Well, it's defined differently in the Scriptures. Um, um, but as you know, we always have to interpret things or words contextually. And we also have to interpret them uh, with the broad spectrum of all, of all of Scripture, and in particularly redemptive Scripture. So there's something inconsistent with God loving, let's say, everybody that's ever been born. He loves them, and He, he tries His best to bring them to Himself, and sometimes He's successful, and sometimes He isn't. I mean, isn't that a common? Uh, wouldn't that be kind of a common you know, He loves you so much, he really, he really says to you, I gave you a free will and I love you so much, I'm going to leave it up to you. I, I, was, I went to a Greek Orthodox uh, funeral one day. Uh, um, have you ever been in a Greek Orthodox church? It was kind of, it's kind of educational. If you ever have, ever have an opportunity, I hope you don't, in terms of a funeral, <laughs> but you know, sometimes we have friends that you know go go through those things. And but the, but the priest said, you know, God loved us so much, He gave us free will. Now think about that for a moment. Is that love? I want God to save me. <laughs> We're going to learn when we study the doctrine of sin that because of the fall in the garden, our will was corrupted. Okay? If you will, it was damaged. Because everything was damaged about the spiritual relationship between God and Adam and Eve. I mean, number one, he drove them out of the garden. Okay? I mean, think about it this way. God loved Adam and Eve so much, why didn't he prevent the serpent from entering the garden? Okay. Did God know the serpent was going to enter the garden? More importantly, Adam knew, and Adam watched it happen, and Adam watched the serpent deceive Eve. Where, where was he when all this was going on? On the dead gum sidelines. Don't stay in the sidelines, by the way. So, um, so it raises um, uh, some difficult uh, issues. Uh, let's look at... Uh, for example, a parallel text in Luke chapter 2, verse 1. If memory serves me, the, the Greek words may be different, but the concept uh, gives us, uh, I think, a quick understanding. Uh, of, 
what I'm trying to get you to struggle with, really get me to struggle with. And it came about in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. Really? Did Roman agents go to Peru? You guys have your blank stares at me. Roman agents did not go to Venezuela. I'm sorry, they didn't. I mean, that was outside the civilized world to them. Uh, he didn't send agents down to the Incas. Okay? So you understand the struggle here. Now, this is important because people say, well, those Calvinists... Um, they, they just don't believe in all the scriptures and they don't, they don't interpret the scriptures literally. Well, how literally are you going to interpret that? Caesar had a decree. I mean, you didn't mess with Caesar's decree, number one, okay? The sins be taken of all the inhabited earth. Well, there's the text. You think it really means? No, it means the whole Roman world. It could have cared less about the Incas. You know, so civilized world. Uh, so in that sense, and here's what I'm going to introduce to you when we look at John chapter three. You want to turn back there. Uh, the con there's a concept in Scripture that is uh, all men without distinction and all men without exception. Now, all men without exception is everybody. But all men without distinction. Is um, just neither male, female, slave, free, rich, poor, smart, and in my case, not so smart. So there's no distinction. Okay. Now that was a rat. I want you to think about this. That was a radical concept to the Jews in the days of Jesus. Okay. Because their concept of, of uh, Messiah was he was going to come and defeat the Romans and reestablish them as the preeminent power and recipients of the blessings of God. That's what their theology had evolved into. Okay? Think of it in this way. Uh, um, the Jews would not travel through Samaria. They would go around it because they despised them. Just, so stop and think. Does Jesus go into Samaria? Yeah, He does. Yeah, He does. So there's an issue that we're dealing with with their theology which was totally ethnocentric. Okay? Um, and they were prejudicial against everybody else. They looked down upon the Romans. They looked down. They really looked down on the Samaritans. And women were second-class citizens. So when Jesus is at the well with the Samaritan woman, his disciples were perplexed. What's he doing, spending time with a woman? I mean, what gives here? Well, there's no distinction in Jesus' life either. Uh, yeah. So. Um, 
Um, so could John, could John mean such a thing? Well, let's look at the text again real closely. John chapter 3, verse 15. Notice, notice the fact that universalism is, is couched here in, in the language of believing. So he's piercing the veil of ethnic Israel. It's not just that you were born literally a son of Abraham. That's all that really mattered to them. I'm a son of Abraham. God said He's going to bless Abraham. Everybody born Abraham. Uh, New, the New Testament authors spiritualize that, as you know. You can't take it literally because not every Jew is going to be saved. Think of the book of Romans. Not all Israel was Israel. So who is Israel? Who is true Israel? Those who believe in Christ. That's true Israel. By the way, you and I are true Israel. Okay? So let's look at John, John 3.15. Whoever believes in Him may have eternal life, including Samaritan, morally compromised women. Okay? They can be saved too. Thank God. You may say, well, I'm not a morally compromised woman, but, you know, you weren't perfect, whatever it was, you know. So we, we be very careful. I mean, remember Jesus' famous word, let him who is without sin pick up the first stone. You know, to catch a woman in adultery? I mean, that was a capital offense in the Old Testament. So Christ says, well, let him who is without sin pick up the first stone. Well, they all kind of slink away, don't they? Because they knew they were sinners too. I mean, you have to understand the concept of sin before you can ever truly appreciate salvation. So let's look again, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Now notice the parallel to verse 15. That whoever, whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So what I'm suggesting to you is the love of God here. And really the concept of world is framed by everyone believing in Him. And to me, that is what defines for us the concept of world here, not Jewish ethnicity. Okay? I mean, let's think of it in this way. Uh, let's, let's say we, we lived in Mississippi um, in the 1930s. A lot of racism. Does God elect black people? <laughs> yeah, I mean, He does. You know, imagine preaching a sermon. Imagine going to a church in Mississippi and preaching that. You know, now I'm not saying He loves all black people. It's like He doesn't love, you know, all white people. I'm saying He, we know that He's loved someone if they come to believe Him. That's what I'm suggesting to you. Otherwise, we don't know. So, I, I mean, I will just tell you when I'm sharing the Gospel, I don't tell people God loves you. Because to me, that breeds a false sense of security. If God loves me, He's not going to send me to hell. We, we know there's a hell. Well, I'm not even so sure the church believes that anymore, but nonetheless, we do. So, I tell people God loves sinners. And you're a sinner. And He saves sinners. 
I don't tell people He saves everybody because we know He doesn't save everybody. He saves those whom He sets His love upon. Like Jeremiah the prophet. Before you were in the womb, I knew you. I had a special relationship with you. Jeremiah hadn't even been born yet. Okay. Um, let's let's uh, uh, flesh this out a little bit more um, uh, by reminding ourselves um, of the context of John three sixteen and the context. And again. It, I'm not trying to wiggle out of the difficulty here. I'm just setting it within the context. John 3.15-3.16 does not tell us how people come to believe, does it? It just says everyone believing in Him. So the question is, how do they believe in Him? Has John told us that how in John chapter 3? Blank stares. So let's look at verse 8. You tell me. They're not, well, let's read verse 7. Well, no, let's read verse 6. Two. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. So you must be born again. How are you born again? By the Spirit. Okay. Got it? Do not marvel, I said, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the voice of it. But you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. So let me ask you a question of consistency. God the Father loves the whole world, but the Spirit only causes the new birth on those whom He wills. That is the point, by the way, of John 3, 6-8. The wind blows where it wills. Does the wind blow on everybody? No. The Spirit the Spirit blows those whom He wills to blow upon. By the way, if you've come to Christ, it's because he, you were born again. You didn't come to Christ and then He caused you to be born again. Just like the parallel with the infant birth. The infant doesn't cause his birth. Biology and parents do. Okay? The child is the product of biology and parental love and affection, we hope. Okay. So, you must be born again. Not everyone's born again. How are they born again? By the Spirit. Let's, turn, let's, let's look at another conundrum. John chapter 1. Please turn there. I want you to look at the particularism defined in the concept of all men without distinction. Distinction. Not exception, which is literally everybody. Um, came into His own, verse 11. Those who were His own did not receive Him. Oh, so they're out. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who, were, who believe in His name. As many as received Him. Now, how did they receive Him? Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, well, it's not ethnicity, nor the will of the flesh. I have a free will. I can come to Christ anytime I want to. No, it's not that at all. Nor the will of man. So how are we born again? The will of God. 
does he cause everybody to be born again? No, John chapter 3, verse 6 through 8 tells us the Spirit blows where he wills. So think about the consistency of the unity of the Trinity. God loves his own from eternity past. He dispatches his Son to purchase and then the Spirit to apply. Does Christ purchase everybody? He purchases his own. God gave him before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at this some more, but uh, I don't believe Christ purchased everybody. A lot of people do, so let's, let's create the inconsistency. Why does Christ purchase everybody and the Spirit only apply it to those whom He wills to apply it to? Can't they get it together? You see the disjunction there? The Spirit is only going to apply redemption to those, Christ per- those whom Christ purchased. doesn't apply it to everybody. So, what does the Arminian say? Barisonks, you got it all wrong. You have a free will. You are the one that determines whether you're a Christian or not. Excuse me? Am I I misreading this concept of literalism? Who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is the will of God that's the determining factor. Okay? So you tell me, what is this concept of the free will of man? By the way, get out your concordance someday and find me free will in all of the Scriptures. And well, I will find you is sovereign grace and the will of God who saves whom He wills. Okay. Now the point is, I mean, the point is really, in terms of moral application, is incredible humility. Your will didn't save you. You have a will. I'm not you. You will to believe in God. I'm not doubting that at all. You have a will. I'm just saying it's not free. Because it's corrupted by sin, so it takes the will of God. And that's the determining factor. His will gives me, through the new birth, new life, and I will to come to Him because He resurrected me. Okay? So, so um, let's turn to. Um, uh, I, I mentioned John 4 1, the Samaritan woman. I mean, that's a radical concept. You know, would have, you know by, by the way, would, would, would Jesus have gone into Harlem in the 1930s, 40s? Yeah, I think he would have. Okay? Because he saves black people too. Why? Because there's no, it's not an ethnic issue. Yeah? So let's turn to, um, let's turn to John 13.1. Talking about the concept of, of love. And I'm just showing you, I'm going to show you, hopefully, how radical this concept is. John 13, 1. Now, for the feast of the Passover, everybody there? John 13, 1. Uh, Jesus, knowing his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father. Notice the particularism. Having loved his own who were in the world. Notice he doesn't love everybody in the world. He loved his own who were in the world 
and notice the majesty of His love. He loved them to the end. What? He loved Peter, who was going to forsake Him? I mean, when the Roman soldiers came and arrested Jesus, they all scattered like a bunch of cowards. Well, I'd have been there too. You know? I'm not trying to say, you know, tough it up. I'm just saying they all scattered. He even loved Peter, who he knew was going to betray him. He loved his own that were in the world. Wait a minute, I thought he loved everybody in the world. No, he loves his own in the world, and he loves them to the end. I mean, I will tell you if you're a Christian, God hunted you and hunted you down you know, and he began to work on you, okay, to turn you. Then he, you're born again and you turn. The majesty, loved his own in the world. So think about that in terms of the concept of love. Um, let's turn to John chapter 17. So we're in the same author, okay, same, same author here. Um, And let's look at verse 9. So this is our Lord's high priestly prayer. Okay? The Lord is high priest and He's praying. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world. What? I thought God loved everybody in the world. So why isn't the high priest praying for everybody in the world? Okay, so you, you know, the uh, the Armenian is pounding the table. Barsox, you got to take John 3.16, world, world, world. Well, you tell me. How do you get to take our Lord's high priestly prayer? I do not ask on behalf of the world. Is our Lord being inconsistent? No, He loves His own. He's praying for His own. But of though, now notice the particularism, but those that thou hast given me. Okay? Remember John 6? Everyone you gave me. I lose none. Concept of election is tied to issue of love. And God loving us to the end. But of those whom thou hast given me. See? Um, so um, let's let's talk about does this include Judas? Did Jesus love Judas? Well, let's try to answer that question. Verse 12. While I was with them, I was keeping them in Thy name which Thou hast given Me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. When the Scriptures add this appendage that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, they are telling us immediately that Jesus never intended to save Judas. He was kind to him. He was gracious to him. He fed him. He let him steal from him. Okay? The disciples. But that's the kind of people Jesus saves. But He never intended to save Judas. Because the Scripture is going to be fulfilled. He was the son of perdition. 
I mean, Luke says, better he had never been born. Square that with Jeremiah 1.5. If you think God loves everybody. Um, let's turn to Romans. I mean, you know i got to turn here, don't you? Romans chapter 9. So, uh, Romans um, chapter 9, verse 13. Let's take this, God loves everybody. Okay. Anybody want to read Romans chapter 9, 13? I'm slow in turning there. Okay, so you don't, so I'll, I'll read it for you. Now, I want you to tell me. I'm of the Armenian persuasion. Jesus, God loves everybody. Minus one. Well, maybe minus two. Well, we know he didn't love Judas. He was the son of perdition. Can someone tell me someone else he didn't love? Esau. Wait a minute. I thought he loved everybody in the world. Well, minus. Minus a few. <laughs> you know, minus a few. Love, what I'm saying to you is love is a redemptive concept. God set his affections upon you in eternity past. You didn't deserve it. I know you didn't deserve it. Neither did I. We deserved his wrath and contempt. Adam was our forefather and he fell. Okay. His, his love hunted you down like a Indian hunting deer with his bow. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Notice verse 15, the concept of particularism. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. These are Old Testament concepts, Malachi chapter 1. Uh, Malachi 1.3, I have hated Esau. So, um, I, w I would challenge you, there's not a, there's not a verse in all of the Scripture uh, that makes God's uh, redemptive love apply to all men without, ex without exception. Okay. There's just not one. And to say, well, free will, well, you find me free will, and I will turn you to John chapter 1, the will of God. So, uh, again, I... It's a very difficult concept. I just, uh, when I'm doing evangelism, I just think to be very careful with words. I'm not saying that to be perfect, because none of us are perfect in our evangelism, but I'm not going to give someone a false sense of security. So I'm not going to tell them that God loves them. I'm just going to tell them God loves sinners. And I was a sinner and he saved me. And I'm the product of the will of God, not of my own will. Okay, any, any questions? Difficult concept, right? You know what's really the difficult concept? 
See, He loved me. He loved you. Because none of us were deserving. But that's, that's the grace of God. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So of all people, we should be the most humble and careful in our theology. Uh, wrath of God. Um, That aspect of the divine nature which expresses his eternal detestation of all unrighteousness. It's a displeasure and indignation of divine equity against evil. It's the holiness of God stirred into activity against sin. It's the moving cause of that just sentence which he passes on unbelievers. Um. A failure of modern day theology is to think solely in terms of the concept of wrath of God being future. Okay. It is future. I'm not denying that. It's also present. Uh, John 3.36, the wrath of God abides, present tense, on the sons of disobedience. The wrath of God is present now. Okay, I I've quoted... A number of Sundays ago, Romans chapter 1. You and I have studied Rome, a little bit about Romans chapter 1. People are falling into sin, Romans chapter 1. And God says, uh, I gave them over. That's, that's present wrath. They commit, I, they, they commit sexual perversion. I gave them over to it. Paul is saying the wrath of God. That's a terrifying concept. I mean, we here in America, oh, we're so free, we can do anything we want to do, we can do this and redefine marriage and have this partner and on and on and blah, blah, blah. You know what that's a present reality of? The wrath of God on the sons of disobedience. Three times in Romans 1, I gave them over to worse and worse and worse. Uh, that is terrifying, but... Um, Hours getting late, so let's, t let's turn to um, um, let's turn to Hebrews twelve twenty-eight and twenty-nine. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Okay. It's a good exhortation to all of us. Verse 20, for our God's a consuming fire. Okay, Remember we studied God's justice? Justice has to be satisfied. It's either satisfied on an eternal person who is Jesus Christ, or an eternal period of time. Okay. Anybody remember reading in Pink's book here that there's more references to the wrath of God than there is a love of God? Ooh. The reason we share the gospel is to warn people. Flee the wrath to come. It's present, but it's also future. So, um, 
We don't hear many sermons on this, do we? We really don't. And that's, yeah. and that defines the essence of the gospel. Because yeah. God provides a way of salvation in, in his son. Okay. Um, the last um, chapter, um, I'm going to cut wrath short because I deal a little bit with it in the sermon today in uh, destruction of Sodom. Uh, contemplation of God, hopefully as you read through um, Pink's Attributes of God, it, it kind of whets your appetite to continue reading about the majesty of God and His grace towards you. Maybe even read another book on His attributes. Um, but uh, um, the contemplations of God and the attributes of God, like his omniscience and omnipotence, um, omnipresence, um, his will to save those whom he wills to save should, should drive us to contemplate him. And, and, and God should be in all of our thoughts. Um, um, because he, he is an incomprehensible uh, being, we should be lost in the wonder of him. It should enlarge our intellect. It should teach us virtue like humility, reverence, caution. Um, and it should also cause the enjoyment of him. I mean, we should, we should enjoy our salvation. We should enjoy the majesty of who God is. Okay? Um, the enjoyment of God. The contemplation of God. Uh, I mean, think about it in terms of John 13.1. He loved you to the end. He never let up until his love secured you. Okay. So we, we, we really need to think about God uh, according to the thoughts about God in the Scriptures. We should think God's thoughts after Him. Um. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, what's the chief end of man? Yeah, well, um, enjoy him forever. We should enjoy God forever. And uh, uh, I, I really think as you can continue in our theological studies that you will, you will find God becoming more and more in your thought life. Okay. So, and... Um, Because we should think about him because of the majesty of our salvation. Okay, so this was a difficult lesson, I think. Um, maybe it wasn't for you, but challenging. We've dealt, we've dealt with the concept of consistency, haven't we? And we've looked at context that should cause us to think about, wait a minute. God so loved the world. Did he love Esau? Did he love Judas? Okay. Did he love Pharaoh? The Old Testament, pouring out his wrath on Pharaoh, just going to destroy him. Yeah. So, um, um, yeah, sure.
You need to speak up a little bit, Jessica. Yeah, speak up a little bit. Oh, give me the page. Well, yeah, sure. That you know, yeah, yeah. No, I mean we should have. We should all of us, I think, have those similar thoughts. I mean, because all of us know people who laugh at the concept of judgment. Yeah, just reject it. Um, yeah. I mean, he warns us. He sent the prophets, and finally, he sends his only begotten son. So he has provided a way of escape, but we need to depend upon him and hope in him. But I just encourage you, if you have family members, um, who know, children, uh, maybe colleagues at work that you are very, very fond of, just begin to pray for them. Uh, typically what I do, you begin to pray for someone, but you also ask God, open a natural door. A natural way to say something, you know, I'm a Christian, or whatever it is. Um, I mean, it's kind of unnatural to grab your friend and say, look, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Bowersox told me that you're in deep, you know, um, deep trouble. Um, deep, deep wasabi, if you've ever eaten it, a whole lot of it, you kind of, woo, or kimchi. Uh, Koreans would, you know, criticize me for that. But again, I brought something about rotten cabbage that uh, gets to. But but you know what I'm saying? That be so. I always ask, say, well, I'm on an airplane. I'm sitting next to someone because the you know ticket agent didn't permit me to second next. So I just say, God, you open a natural door. Make it a natural conversation piece for me to share my testimony. Father, we should have a you should have a 45-second testimony that you should be passionate about because God saved you. Okay. So think in those terms and pray for people and ask God to open open a door. It's what I, what I do. Okay, let's close. Well, I've kind of gone over. I apologize for that. Uh, let's close real quickly in a word of prayer. Uh, Father, keep us humble and help us to be virtuous and to pray for the lost. Um, and to be bold in sharing the gospel and uh, to open many, many doors uh, because we know the lost are in a serious way. 
And uh, these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. You know, by the way, one of the criticisms against the Reformed faith is, well, you guys don't share the gospel. Well, we do. Um, uh, the, uh, the scriptures uh, press upon us to do so. And uh, uh, I remind you, God hasn't told you the, who the elect are. So you share the gospel with all men because you don't know who they are and you don't know who God's going to save. But he uses means, he uses people, and he uses the gospel. So keep those things in mind. Okay, so next time, no reading assignment.